Welcome to Season 8 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $100 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional and retail investors. That capital is invested across private and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to, partners of, and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the CIO of a nearly 50 billion euro market cap German reinsurance company. He studied at Durham University and Cambridge before starting his career in finance as a fixed income fund manager at Mercury Asset Management in London. In 2002, he joined Schroeder's, where he eventually became head of global fixed income in 2008. In 2010, he moved to J.P. Morgan Asset Management, where he was their international CIO for the global FIC business. After a little less than a decade at J.P. Morgan, he then moved over to Munich Reinsurance, one of the world's leading reinsurance businesses, where he currently serves as their CIO and member of the Board of Management. Munich Re is a valued partner of HBS, and we are honored by their support and partnership with us. Without any further ado, then, I'm excited to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Nick Gartside, CIO of Munich Re. Nick, welcome to the pod. Thank you, and welcome from me. Well, Nick, I always like to begin all the way back at the beginning. Where are you from originally? Where'd you grow up, Nick? So I grew up very close to Manchester. That's Manchester, England, for those listening in North America. And that, of course, means I'm a Manchester United fan. There you go. You're either a red or you're blue from there, I know. All right, so you attend Durham University undergrad and then on to Cambridge to get your MPhil in international relations. What did you think you wanted to do back then, Nick? As a boy growing up, uh, the thing I really wanted to do was actually join the Royal Navy. That was absolutely my big aspiration in life. And then when I got to Durham, and that was developed at Cambridge, I got the finance bug. And that was really some of the introduction to economics that really crystallized that. Okay, so you've caught the finance bug. You you get out of university. Your first finance job was at Mercury Asset Management. Tell us how that opportunity came about for you. Oh, well, I applied uh, on the regular uh, analyst program. And at that point, Mercury was one of the four big fund managers uh, in the UK. It was a listed company. It was a FTSE 100 company. And uh, the attraction there, of course, was the trailing. The other attraction there was that I wanted to join the fixed income department. And that was seen as something astonishingly weird. Who wants to do fixed income in a time, believe it or not, Equities are way sexier, Nick. I mean, why? Equities what, what are way sexier, uh, particularly at a time when countries are running balanced budgets. People forget those days, but there was a time when the United States ran a balanced budget and bond markets were shrinking. Anyway, I thought bonds were were wonderful. And why? What drew you to them, Nick? Well, I like the fact that there was a precision with bonds. So you've got a coupon, you've got a duration. You can then start to think in terms of credit risk. The big drivers, of course, of fixed income markets, those big macro events, it's interest rates, it's politics, it's economics. Whereas, of course, when you're looking at narrow equity sectors, as I used to tell my equity colleagues, you know, it's fiddly. You're restricted. With fixed income, you've got the whole world as your oyster. And remember, fixed income markets are the basis of everything. The first thing an equity person looks at is that 10-year treasury yield. I couldn't agree more as a die-to-the-wool credit guy. I always think first jobs on some level are formative, and you talk about the training aspect. What did you learn from Mercury? Talk to me about the experience that you learned on the job there. Oh, well, Mercury was a form um, born out of what was Warburg's. And Sir Sigmund Warburg was a refugee from Germany in the 1930s. 
And he set a firm up that shook the British establishment, the financial establishment. That was the firm that did the first hostile takeover. It was the firm that really pioneered the euro bond market. So what you had there was a firm that was very innovative. It thought a little bit differently. It took risks, yes, calculated risks. And that's what you got at a firm like that, uh, an exposure to some of those influences. So in the early 2000s then, after your Mercury experience, you make the move over to Schroeder's. Why was that the right time in your career for that move? Well, I was always conscious, and I think an early lesson from one of my first bosses was, he said, you must always manage your career. And uh, what you must always have as well is a good boss. My first boss was a fantastic boss. Then he moved on to do different things. So I thought, it's time to develop my career. It's time to get a new boss. Then I joined Schroeder's. What was that new role? What were you doing there? So that was a similar role, but it was European government bond management. But remember then, managing European government bonds was fascinating. There were different currencies to deal with. You had the Eurozone converging. You had the development of credit markets in Europe. Believe it or not, they were very new. So by 2008, you become the head of global fixed income for Schroeder's, just in time for Lehman to fail and the global financial crisis to happen. Tell me about that experience. What was it like sitting in an investing seat in in what you were doing then in the midst of the global financial crisis? Well, I think like many people, these are the real formative experiences, aren't they? Because actually the the unknown uh, is happening. The unthinkable is happening. Very fortunately, the portfolios that we were running then were low risk in terms of certainly credit risk. But I think what you learn and what you see then is actually the fragility of the financial system. People forget in in Britain, we came probably within a few hours of ATMs not giving cash. So you can start to understand the scale of the financial market rescue that we saw then. It's amazing. Okay, so after that time then at Schroeder's in 2010, you move over to JP Morgan. Tell us about the House of Morgan and why that was the right choice then for you. Oh, well, I think, I mean, to have the opportunity to join JP Morgan was an amazing uh, opportunity. It's uh, a wonderful company, a wonderful firm. And yet again, it was about developing the career because the job there was a bigger job, going from just the head of global fixed income to the international CIO. So it was a bigger team. It was more assets. It was a much bigger platform. So that was a tremendous opportunity from a personal perspective and also to have the opportunity to contribute to a JP Morgan. And Nick, at that point in your career, you're running businesses that are new, as you said. They're broader for you. They're different than what you grew up investing in. Just as a point of personal practice, how do you learn new businesses like that? Like, how do you say, okay, fine, now I'm overseeing currency and commodities, which is related to but different than what you had grown up doing. How do you learn the new skills? Well, I think you listen, you learn, uh, and you trust. So the reality is that when you look at uh, teams like that, firms like that, the people are very good. You've had people that have done some of these jobs for very long periods of time. And so actually, it's about trusting colleagues. It's about learning from them. So you spent about a decade at J.P. Morgan, and in 2019, you joined Munich Re as their CIO. Let me start with the basics. Before we talk about your job, for our listeners less familiar, what is Munich Re? Can you give us sort of the guide to Munich Re as an institution? Yeah, absolutely. So Munich Re is a reinsurance company. Uh, What does a reinsurer do? It obviously insures insurance companies. When you think of the world of reinsurance, 
There are two big listed competitors, Munich Re and Swiss Re. What's the size of that business? Munich Re has gross written premiums of about 50 billion euros or thereabouts a year and a market cap of 45 billion or so. So how does an insurance company earn money? Clearly from the insurance side, but also very importantly from the investment side. So on the investment side, you come in as their global CIO. Tell us about that responsibility set. What is the portfolio you're managing? So the portfolio at Munich Re is about 250 billion euros. What's the source of that money? It comes from our reinsurance business. Reinsurance in an asset manager would be run like a low-risk multi-asset portfolio. And a primary insurance portfolio is really long-duration fixed income. So what's the asset mix there? Heavily fixed income, but actually a little bit of everything. Equities, commodities, gold, you name many alternative assets. Uh, Forestry, uh, for instance, uh, infrastructure debt, infrastructure equity, renewables, uh, we would would own them. Long-dated liabilities, so you need long-dated assets to match that up. It makes complete sense. Now, tell me about your transition. You know, you've lived and grew up in a I'm going to put this in air quotes, traditional asset management, you know, at these financial institutions. And then you make this move over to managing an insurance portfolio. How different, if at all, are those jobs? Like, what was that transition like? Oh, quite different. So you've got a, a different country. You've got Germany. Uh, I'm based in Munich. Embarrassingly, I still don't speak a word of German. So you've got that as a cultural shock. And then, of course, the big difference in managing money is that you have many more dimensions. If you think in a traditional asset manager, you have a dimension that is the portfolio relative to a benchmark. Maybe you've two benchmarks. When you think of an insurance company, you've got many more dimensions. You may have rating capital. You may have solvency capital. You'll have accounting considerations. And you want the portfolio to beat a benchmark or have an absolute return. So intellectually, there's a few extra layers of complexity. That, of course, is the interesting challenge. You're solving simultaneous equations on the job. I love it. Okay, so you're sitting in your seat. You know, you join in a relatively benign market in 2019. You've invested through crises before, as we talked about. But, you know, COVID hits in 2020. Talk to me about the market impact of COVID for your portfolio and how you reacted to that crisis. With COVID, we had a good starting point. Again, if you think of an insurance company, uh, balance sheet heavily in fixed income. That's a good starting point. The challenge was the volatility, particularly when I think back to the first quarter of uh, 2020. Actually, we had a very good first quarter of 2020 uh, in the end, but it was very volatile. And I suspect when history books are written, I think it was a much more dangerous position for the financial system, actually, than the Lehman Lehman crisis. Uh, I think we came really very close to the financial market system collapsing. Why do you say that, Nick? Because there were days when virtually all assets were going down. People were running out, not us, I hasten to add, but as a system, participants were running out of collateral. I think the fragility was exceptional. Hence, the central bank response then was, let's be honest, off the charts. Central banks then did in a matter of weeks what it took them years to do following the great financial crisis. That makes complete sense. Okay, let's talk about a little bit of outlook for a second. You and I are recording this in the first quarter of 2023. Markets, as we speak, are recovering quite nicely, but it all feels very uncertain. And I'm curious your macro take. We've seen, you know, inflation rates move for the first time in a long time. 
you've been doing this for a long time, so it's not your first rodeo with this. But how do you see the situation resolving itself, and how do you position your portfolio in moments of market volatility like this? Inflation comes down. It's starting to. I think people accept that, and it does for the mathematical reasons. So I think then one consequence is central banks probably keep rates a little higher than the market participants feel at the moment. I think that's probably a good thing. It's a much more realistic cost of capital. I think it then helps to reflect proper risk premium in economies. And then I think the interesting aspect will be corporate earnings. It may well be that they stay a little bit more robust than people think. Why this time? I always go back to the employment picture. And the reality is, if you look at major economies around the world, there aren't enough workers. Levels of employment are very high, unemployment very, very low. If people have jobs, that's very important because then they can believe tomorrow is better than today. If you believe tomorrow is better than today, you can take a little bit of risk. And at the moment, it's also back to generally, maybe not in line with inflation, but workers getting pay rises. So that, that's not a bad economic cocktail. Let's talk about private credit for a second. It's seen explosive growth, obviously, in the last decade. You know, per prequin, it was a roughly $100 billion asset class in 0809. Today, it's over a trillion. What is your and Munich Re's perspective on private credit as an asset class at this point in the market cycle? Good asset class, because ultimately, you remove some of the volatility you see in public markets. And if you like, the underwriting that can be done can be a lot more bespoke than for public markets. And... You know, I think the really interesting part always is that the earlier you're in an investment chain, the greater reward you get. Well, and as you think about that and how it fits in the portfolio, when you guys are managing $250 billion, you obviously have an enormous scale. You have the, the great privilege of being able to work with anybody you want, you know, in these various asset classes. How do you define it? What's important to you when you look at a manager? What are the characteristics that really matter, do you think? Risk control. So we've no problem with that with managers taking risk. Many cases, we actively want them to take risk. So ultimately, it's, it's looking at their credit analysis and how they do that and really understanding what they're buying. Yes, it, it can go wrong. That's fine. But as long as they understand the reasons for that, then I think we can be pretty happy. Well, and it, it does strike me, you know, that there's been a decade of benign environments generally where that's mattered less. It's easy when everything goes up and to the right. It's when it's in markets like this where asset selection and credit quality, that, that is the only thing that matters. I couldn't agree more. Another big topic for you, we chatted with a previous guest, Carson Quitter from Allianz, and it's clear that ESG is more than just a buzzword for German institutions in particular. How are you incorporating ESG considerations into your investment philosophy these days? So we, a few years ago, joined the UN Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. So that's the alliance where by 2050, you commit to the emissions from your investment portfolio being in line with the Paris Accords, and you publish five-year plans. So starting at the end of 2019, by 2025, we said the emissions from our investment portfolio will be 25 to 29% lower. And we're well on track uh, to meet that. And how do we do it? We can exclude bad things, if you like, from the portfolio. The challenge, I think, with that is the real-world impact is minimal. You sell something, someone else buys it. So I don't think it potentially achieves a great deal. The other way, I think, to do ESG 
is to engage with companies. I think that's very powerful because it changes behaviors. And the really powerful way is to integrate ESG factors into an investment process. And by integrating it, that means the portfolio manager, yes, looks at all the traditional valuation metrics, but also just thinks also of how ESG factors impact those as well. And that's super powerful because you're then changing behaviors. You're changing a culture. And then actually you do have, I think, quite a significant real world impact time. So I put a lot of emphasis on integrating it into the process and then also engaging with, with relevant companies. Nick, I think it makes complete sense. There, there's sort of, we always think about a sort of active versus passive, you know, involvement with ESG. It's one thing to say, well, I'm not going to lend to a coal company. Well, then somebody else is going to lend to a coal company. Like, and that's, you know, that's fine. We can all make our own value judgments about that. But the the integrative, the the really active aspect of it, you know, as you say, you can really change behavior. Exciting stuff. Well, listen, Nick, very much appreciate your insights and thoughts. Uh, we are excited to continue our relationship in the future. Um, with that, I want to move to the last segment of the podcast, which is something we like to call best ideas. It's where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently, best ideas, because our goal as investors is always to maximize exposure to those. Nick, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What's your best idea this week? Best idea for people is a book. And the best book I've read recently was A History of the World in 100 Objects. Now, that was by someone called Neil McGregor. He was the head of the British Museum. So he found 100 objects in the British Museum. The earliest one is from, I don't know, two or three million years ago, believe it or not. The latest one is a very recent uh, object. It's all themed, really, by age. And I like that because there's something for everybody. So what, what specifically did I like in it? Uh, there's quite a few coins, money. There's the first uh, bit of paper money, which came from China, I think, in uh, the mid-1300s. And that I like, you see how societies started to fall, how they started to develop. You also see the role finance played in that. And I think that uh, finance plays a very good role in the world. It plays a very enabling role. It allows people to take risks. It helps develop economies. It helps develop economic growth and things like that. That's my idea for this week. Pick a copy up, thumb through it, you'll find an object you like. A History of the World in 100 Objects by British Museum Director Neil McGregor. Fantastic recommendation. Well, I'm thrilled I actually have a book for you this week as well. As listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guests of the week. Um, Nick is British, obviously, but works now for a German company based in Munich. And so I started thinking about one of my favorite books of historical fiction. It's written by a British gent set in Munich. And so my best idea this week is the book Munich by Robert Harris. Now, Harris is a giant in the historical fiction space. He's probably best known is also a remarkable book, Fatherland, which explores an alternate reality where Germans won World War II. Munich is a political thriller, and it's about English and German operatives working together to try to stop the conflict on the eve of World War II. It's brilliantly written, and like most of his works, it's plausible, like it's fiction, but it reads like it's true in a very compelling way, and it's exhaustively researched. It was also made into a movie a couple of years back starring Jeremy Irons. The movie is called Munich, Edge of War, uh, but I personally think the book is better. So in honor of our British friend in Munich, let me recommend the book Munich by fellow Cambridge graduate Robert Harris. Nick, are you ever read any Robert Harris books? I have, but not that one. But I love the recommendation. I will read it. 
Perfect. There you go. Well, I thought it was topical. Nick, with that, it's time to wrap up for the week. We sincerely appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Always great to catch up. Thankful for your firm's support and investment in HPS and look forward to working together more in the coming years. Pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks again to our guest, Nick Gartside. Check out our show notes to learn more about Nick and his firm, Munich Re. You'll also find a link to Nick's best idea of the week, the novel A History of the World in 100 Objects by Neil McGregor, and to my best idea, the novel Munich by Robert Harris. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.